It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, June 12th. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. To become a licensed security guard in California, you're required to take a training course, which is unsurprising. What is surprising? The emphasis the course places on weapons of mass destruction and terrorism. Outdated training methods come under fire in today's California report. Then, in the wake of a recent Senate committee hearing, National Native News wonders how a Surgeon General's warning, the kind we're used to seeing on cigarette packs, would work on social media. And KVMR's Felton Pruitt clues us in on all things downtown Nevada City in the latest Chamber Report. He's got the details on the Nevada City Film Festival, Movies Under the Pines, and Summer Nights. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. New research from UCLA's Prison Accountability Project finds big problems in the medical care incarcerated people were provided with during the first year of the pandemic. The report looked at hundreds of transcripts of calls and letters from the prisoners. They described unsanitary conditions, periods of what they called inhumane isolation, and a lack of medical care. Joe Galen is one of the law students behind the study. The numbers of people who were infected with COVID tell a very damning story. An even more concerning thing is when people say, it's not just that we were infected with COVID, that when we got COVID, we weren't isolated at all. Fellow law student Nora Browning says this is part of longstanding problems with the state prison system. Proper ventilation and proper sanitation, and that's never been a priority in California prisons. And This pandemic compounded it and made it so much worse because there were already these systemic failures. Chino, Solano, Chuckawalla, and Mule Creek state prisons were listed as the most problematic. In an email, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation says it takes the health and safety of those who live and work in state prisons seriously. And it continues to work to address the impacts of the pandemic. There are more than 300,000 licensed security guards in California, a number that's been growing over the past decade. But in the wake of a fatal shooting of an alleged shoplifter in San Francisco last month by a Walgreens drugstore guard, the training required by state regulators is looking increasingly outdated. KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos reports. This security guard training video made a lot of sense back in 2004 when California first started regulating security guard licenses more extensively. Conventional weapons such as guns, explosives, and incendiary devices, chemical and biological agents, nuclear weapons, and radiological material. At the time, the nation was at war, and the 9-11 attacks were a fresh memory. So state leaders dedicated four hours of the 40-hour course to handling weapons of mass destruction and other terrorist threats. So to be honest with you, from 2004 to now, there's there's not been a security officer in the state of California that's found any weapons of mass destruction. That's David Chandler, president of the California Association of Licensed Security Agencies, Guards, and Associates, or CalSaga. He says businesses are increasingly relying on private security guards to protect their stores, not from terror threats, but often from people who are shoplifting. So I think we're teaching the wrong subject for four hours and, and not teaching the security guards how to get along with people and how to, how to you know, protect people's rights. 
In late April, a security guard at a San Francisco Walgreens store shot and killed Banco Brown, who was allegedly shoplifting about $14 worth of merchandise, including a box of cereal. It wasn't the first time in recent years that an altercation with a security guard in California left someone dead. In 2019, Mario Matthews ended up on life support and later died after a security guard at the Golden One Center in Sacramento allegedly kneeled on his neck for more than four minutes. Matthews, accused of trespassing, had methamphetamine in his system when he entered the arena around 3.30 a.m. and ran around the court pretending to dribble a basketball. Assemblyman Chris Holden, a Democrat from Pasadena, says, It just seemed to be so senseless. Holden's office started looking into what it takes to become a licensed security guard in California. While security guards in both cases had to watch four hours of training videos focused on WMDs. We realized that these private security guards who also carry a baton and a gun, but are not trained to intervene in those kind of situations at all. They are not taught uh, de-escalation techniques. Holden introduced legislation in 2021 updating the training requirements for security guards. The law, which took effect in January, mandates eight hours of training in the, quote, exercise of the appropriate use of force. But state regulators are just starting the process to create that new training. It won't be implemented until October at the earliest. One Bay Area security guard says he welcomes the change. The lack of use of force training, along with evolving guidance from security companies themselves, leaves both the public and security guards at greater risk of unnecessary altercations, said the guard, who didn't want to use his name because his employer doesn't allow him to speak to the press. I make it very clear to people because I've been called, I'm like, no, I'm just security. I'm not police. I don't want to be police. Um, but, you know, yeah, we, we do need more training because it is a lot of a lot of people like look at us as police. The industry group CalSaga also backed the legislation. CalSaga's Chandler says security guards are now being asked to do more than ever before and are encountering far more aggressive responses from the public. For the California Report, I'm Marisa Lagos in San Francisco. Support for the California Report comes from Guideline. Their automated 401k plans can be set up in 20 minutes. More at guideline.com CA. Guideline, the California way to 401k. The California Healthcare Foundation, listening to Black Californians, a new study on how the healthcare system undermines their pursuit of good health. On the web at chcf.org backslash lbca. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. San Diego is the latest city in California that could ban homeless encampments on public property. The city council will hold a hearing on the proposal tomorrow. The proposed ordinance would prohibit people from camping on public property if shelter options are available. But it would also ban encampments on certain property like public parks even if shelters are not available. This comes as two reports last week showed a growing number of unhoused people in the city. One found a 32 percent increase in the number of unhoused residents in the city. The other found a record number of unsheltered people in the downtown area. 
Over the weekend, the city of Fresno unveiled street signs to honor the late Cesar Chavez. There are a few streets across the state that honor the farm labor activists. This one is especially significant as it's where Chavez and those in the movement marched and held rallies in the 60s. The honor comes 30 years after Chavez passed away. And that's the California Report for Monday, June 12th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Mavi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. With the clock winding down as Thursday's deadline approaches, the California News Service reports on a potential casualty in state budget negotiations. Details ahead. A program that helps low-income California families buy fruits and vegetables at farmers' markets may be on the chopping block as state budget negotiations come down to the wire. Organizations that fight hunger in the state are asking for $35 million to fund the Market Match program, which is part of the California Nutrition Incentives Program. Minnie Foreman with the Ecology Center oversees Market Match statewide. The program in 2022 alone provided approximately 38 million servings of fruits and vegetables to thousands of CalFresh shoppers. Between 2017 and today, Market Match has put more than 43 million into the hands of CalFresh shoppers to buy more fruits and vegetables. This Thursday is the deadline to pass a state budget and close a projected $31.5 billion shortfall. The program was included in the state assembly version of the budget bill, but not the state senate version, nor is it in the governor's May revise. If it isn't funded, benefits would come to an end after 2024. Market Match allows people using CalFresh EBT cards to spend 10 or $15 a day on fruits and vegetables and get a credit for that same amount, doubling their spending power. Foreman describes the program as a triple win. There are more than just the impact of food security for people. There's also the nutrition aspect of getting food insecure people access to fresh food. There's also the economic impact of helping small family farms in rural areas get access to revenue through farm direct sales sites such as farmers markets. The U.S. Department of Agriculture matches every dollar the state puts toward the California Nutrition Incentive Program. The program serves more than 270 farmers markets across California. This is Suzanne Potter reporting. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. We're used to seeing Surgeon General's warnings on cigarette packs, but how would such a label work when it comes to social media? Up ahead, National Native News focuses on a recent grim diagnosis from U.S. Surgeon General, Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Why are so many American youth in a mental health crisis? That was the title and focus of a recent U.S. Senate committee hearing. One of the major concerns is social media. KMBA's Jill Freitas has more. U.S. Surgeon General Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy testified at the hearing on the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. Last month, my office released two new Surgeon General's advisories, one on our epidemic of loneliness and isolation, and the other on social media and youth mental health. Together, they explore two important drivers of the youth mental health crisis. Murthy discussed not only the mental health consequences, but also the physical impacts as they get older. About one in two adults are reporting measurable levels of loneliness, and social disconnection is associated with an increased risk of not only depression, anxiety, and suicide, but also heart disease. 
dementia, stroke, and premature death. Murthy explained how social media impacts the mental growth of youth around the country and how it can disrupt activities essential for healthy development, such as activity, sleep, and in-person interactions, and also the dangers that social media brings. A third of adolescents are telling us that they stay up until midnight or later on weeknights in front of their screens, and much of that is, in fact, social media use. Kids on social media are exposed to extreme, inappropriate, and harmful content. He was asked if he'd support putting out a Surgeon General's warning out about the dangers of social media, similar to what's found on cigarettes. Murthy said he would support that. Parent and educator involvement, as well as holding social media companies accountable to protect young people, were also discussed. I'm Jill Freitas. And accounting for the U.S. government's Indian boarding school system is the focus of legislation, which recently passed the U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs. KLCC's Brian Bull reports. For over a century, thousands of Native American children were taken from their families and put into schools as part of a broader effort to assimilate them. Cultural practices from long hair to wearing traditional dress were prohibited. Melvin Sheldon is a Tulalip Indian and a Pacific Northwest representative for the National Congress of American Indians. He says many children were also abused. If you didn't learn the language, they would punish you. If you spoke your own language, you were punished. Who knows what other areas that they would punish our young boys and girls as they endured the boarding school experience. The bill would form a commission to investigate, document, and acknowledge past injustices by the federal government in its boarding school system. I'm Brian Bull. A new book explores the history and future of Oneida's relationship with white corn. Lena Tran of Station WUWM reports. In the Oneida language, the word for corn really shows how important it is. Ngonasti really has two meanings. One is our corn, but it also means our precious. In her book, Our Precious Corn, Rebecca Webster explores the relationship between her people and corn. She traces its history and interviews community members, collecting childhood memories and favorite recipes. Throughout time, corn has been a staple in the Oneida diet and an important part of daily and ceremonial life. Corn is the eldest of the three sisters, and she's the leader of those garden plants. And in so many ways, she has led us throughout all of our history. Webster and her husband run a farm on the reservation in northeast Wisconsin, where they grow corn and other indigenous crops. They weren't raised as farmers, and the work didn't come easy. Sometimes there was shame and embarrassment because we didn't have the answers, because we didn't know about these foods. We didn't know what seeds we had, how to best grow them, because that knowledge had been taken from us through colonization, assimilation, and removal. Webster's book represents the latest in her efforts to share what they've learned. I'm Lena Tran in Milwaukee. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at AARP.org. 
Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at your local news. Nevada County's District Two will hold a town hall focused on wildfire preparedness and prevention. The Wednesday, June 14th meeting takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Higgins Lions Community Center on East Hacienda Drive in Grass Valley. The town hall will see presentations from Cal Fire, Nevada County Consolidated Fire Protection, the Nevada County Sheriff's Office, and the Office of Emergency Services, along with others. A question and answer discussion, moderated by District Two Supervisor Ed Schofield, will follow the presentations. The Sacramento Regional Transit District has partnered with GiddyUp EV Charging and Sacramento Municipal Utility District, known to many as SMUD, to unveil a new public high-speed electric vehicle charging hub at the Power and Light Rail station in East Sacramento. The charging hub unveiling will be celebrated with what the Regional Transit District is calling a plug-in ceremony on Wednesday, June 14th at 10 a.m. The project features a large-scale network of level three charging stations, which have the ability to charge both passenger and commercial vehicles dramatically faster than the level two chargers currently found in the majority of public charging stations. In a news release, the Sacramento Regional Transit District says this is a step towards meeting California's goal of 250,000 public chargers by 2025. Drivers are used to congestion when it comes to visiting Lake Tahoe, but commute time for those heading to South Lake in the near future may be impacted even more than usual. One-way traffic control will go into effect along portions of Highway 50 in South Lake Tahoe early this week, causing up to 20-minute delays, according to Caltrans. Construction will focus on grinding down and repaving rough sections of pavement on a nearly five-mile stretch between Pioneer Trail and Jewel Road in both directions. That means, yep, you guessed it, single direction traffic, which will begin from 5 a.m. to 8 p.m. Tuesday through Thursday. The work is part of the $17 million Caldor Fire Restoration Project. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the project focuses on reducing the risk of disastrous wildfires, repairing burned areas, and rebuilding fire-damaged infrastructure within the El Dorado National Forest. Now let's take a look at your local forecast from the National Weather Service. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight partly cloudy with a low around 55 degrees. Tuesday sunny with a high near 77. A 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms after 2 p.m. Tuesday night will be partly cloudy with a low around 58 degrees. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight mostly cloudy with a low around 53 degrees. Showers likely and a possible thunderstorm before 8 p.m. A 60% chance of precipitation. Tuesday, increasing clouds with a high near 68 degrees. Scattered showers and thunderstorms after 11 a.m. Tuesday night will be mostly cloudy with a low around 45 degrees. The Truckee Tahoe area remains under flood watch until 9 p.m. this evening. In Sacramento and Woodland, tonight partly cloudy with a low around 58 degrees. Tuesday, sunny with a high near 83. Tuesday night will be mostly clear with a low around 58 degrees and gusts as high as 18 miles per hour. You're listening to the evening news on KVMR. Stay tuned. KVMR's Felton Pruitt's here with the latest downtown Nevada City Chamber report. 
Listen in as he brings us details on the Nevada City Film Festival, movies under the pines, the downtown art walks, and summer nights. We're talking with Stuart Baker. He's the executive director of the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce. And every once in a while, Stuart, you let us know what's going on in our fine city. What is happening? Well, lots are coming up. It's summertime, and it's a great time to be out and about in the downtown and in Seven Hills. So what we have going on next up that's coming is the Nevada City Film Festival, which was, I guess, recently voted on USA Today as one of the top 10 festivals in the country. So that is pretty impressive. And that's going to be happening from June 23rd, which is a Friday, until June 25th. And information, if you'd like, details, you can uh, link to their site through ours at nevadacitychamber.com. So if you want to schedule and times and all those details. And then on the topic of movies, Movies Under the Pines are coming back for the summer, and that's at Pioneer Park. And there's going to be three dates. The next two are June 23rd, in which the Iron Giant is going to be playing and then on July 7th, there's The Curse of the Were-Rabbits. Um, the <laughs> movies start at 7.30. That's always wonderful to see movies out there, but they have to start a little late, don't they? They start uh, as soon as it gets, you know, dusk enough. So, um, you know, if you show up by 7.30, I think you should be fine. And then moving into July this year, the, the parade is going to be in Grass Valley, so everyone should know that. That's the 4th and of July parade you're talking the about. The 4th of July parade, correct, yes. And uh, uh, soon after, we'll be having our second Art Walk of the Summer. Um, the first one happened last week, and it was fabulous. There were a lot of folks out, and uh, the weather was perfect, and we're going to have some added features this time in terms of entertainment. So uh, that's from 6 to 9, and that is on July 7th. And then our perennial summer favorite, Summer Nights, not to be confused with Hot Summer Nights, which is in Reno, but we're Summer Nights, and that's going to be on Wednesdays in the second half of July, and that's the 12th, the 19th, and the 26th of July. And those events are all from 6 to 9.30. So um, look forward to that. And one also nice small thing, there's a new Spanish conversation club that's starting up. And it's going to be once a month at Espiritu Art on Broad Street. That's where the old Broad Street Bistro was. And that's going to be on June 30th from 11 to 12. So those are some of the things happening in our fine city in the next month, and um, we're looking forward to seeing everyone downtown. Give folks the website one more time. Absolutely. It is nevadacitychamber.com. We've been talking with Stuart Baker. He's the executive director of the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce. Keep up the good work, Stuart. Hey, thanks, Felton. Have a good one. Enjoy the summer when it gets here. That's our newscast for Monday, June 12th. Listen to anything you may have missed at our website, kvmr.org, and connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Solbaros and Audiology Associates Hearing Center, connecting the Nevada County community to the sounds of life, offering holistic hearing health care, including hearing tests, earwax removal, hearing aids, and counseling. 
More information at grassvalleyhearing.com. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendonca. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. Thank you.